0: Okay, hi everyone, welcome to Ancient Heroes. I'm here today with Christopher Heaney, who's the Assistant Professor of Latin American History at Penn State University. He has expertise in the history of Peru and the Incas, in addition to other topics, and he's the author of the recent book, Empires of the Dead, Inca Mummies and the Peruvian Ancestors of American Anthropology, which I believe just came out this summer. Um, So hello, Professor, welcome to the show. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that bio? No, Patrick, this is
1: great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk Incas with you.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Same. Okay, so starting out, I'd like to just ask you a little bit about your background and uh, what. how did you come to study Latin American history?
1: Um, thank you. Uh, I am a historian by training. Um, I thought I was going to be an archaeologist when I entered college. And I thought by being an archaeologist, I would be studying um what I thought were the ancient civilizations of the Americas, the Incas, um, Aztecs, and Mayas. And for the first part of college, you know, that was the plan. But then I was exposed to the writings of Inca and Andean peoples who survived uh, the Spanish invasion. And I realized that there was a lot I didn't know about that story and how interesting it was that it's not just a story of um, civilizations, as as sometimes European archaeologists call them, civilizations collapsing, mm. but um, survival. And uh, I realized that I was really interested in how Inca and Andean people made sense of their lives after this momentous event and kept going and creating um, new societies and influencing um, human society in a new way. And then when my senior year of college, um, I was hunting around for a topic to write a senior thesis on. And I became really interested in the story of uh, the Yale explorer, Hiram Bingham, uh, who made Machu Picchu famous in the pages of National Geographic. But as I learned, got into a fight with the proving government over the ownership of the tombs of Machu Picchu, the, the human remains that were within them as well as the objects. And since then, I haven't really looked back. I've been a historian of, of uh, the Incas as a historical people, but also of Peru and the history of science and museums specializing in the question of who owns the bodies of the
0: past. Mm. Wow. Wow. So this distinction between historian and archaeologist, is that a distinction you're making? And can you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, um, that's a good question. I, I don't excavate. Um, I don't uh, work in what archaeologists call the field Uh, I work in archives and books and sometimes museums um, with their collections, uh, looking at the accession records and the documents that are behind the scenes to find out how things arrived at museums. And sometimes that'll take me to looking at the thing that is being collected itself to to understand, you know, what might have been forgotten about it when it entered a museum collection. But uh, I'm mostly interested in text and I also believe that there's a tremendous amount um, that we've forgotten in, in the search to dig and dig and dig and sort of supplement our history of the world before writing that way. You know, there's a, a lot that's been found that still remains to be studied. So mm. I think in recent years, I've sort of drift a little bit closer to the side of anthropology and archeology span and I collaborate yeah. with anthropologists and archeologists, but I think of myself mostly as a historian. Um, my uh, my sources are usually written ones. I do do interviews sometimes, um, and I've started to work with some modern communities as well. But uh, there is just so much uh, that was written and recorded in archives and books in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century that uh, remains to be um, understood in a way that it wasn't necessarily at the time.
0: Okay, okay. Well, so maybe we can just jump on in and start talking about the Incas a little bit. Um I think probably listeners have heard of the Incas and might have a general impression, but um, like I told you via email, we spent most of the time on this podcast looking at ancient Greece and some of the societies related to ancient Greece. So can you give us, and I know this is a this is a tricky question, but what is that broad brush of the Incas in terms of the timeline of the civilization and kind of where geographically they are, they were located?
1: The Incas were the largest empire in the Americas when the Spanish arrived. And Mm. some historians and geographers and archaeologists like to say that it was probably the the largest empire in terms of extent, in terms of territory it covered in the world at the time. Um, Maybe not in terms of landmass like um, uh, the Ming Empire at that moment, but in terms of it covering... Uh, Most of the Andes from the south of Colombia all the way to the north of Chile and Argentina was certainly the longest. Um, And it got there uh, through about 300 to 400 years of slowly ramping up um, with an acceleration in the last 100 years before the Spanish arrived. So sometime around 1100-1200, the people that the Spanish would come to know as the Incas, were located in the valley of Cusco, where the the heart of their empire would eventually be founded. And um, the Incas had all sorts of stories about themselves, that they traveled a great distance, some from Lake Titicaca, or they came out of a cave in the center um, in in a nearby um, spot called Pacaritambo. Archaeologists and ethnolinguists are Divided. Some say that there's evidence of, that they linguistically are related to people from um, around Lake Titicaca region to, in what is today Bolivia. Um, but certainly by about 1200, um, the people that we come to know as Incas are in place. And over the course of the next 200 years or so, they build... Um, relationships with surrounding peoples slowly at first through marriage alliances, but also through warfare. Um, they have access to something in the sacred in in the the, the valley of Cusco that uh, other communities don't, um, which is a tremendous amount of corn. Um, And so as they get higher in altitude um, and start interacting with communities that can't really grow corn but do grow potatoes, they have something to offer in the form of corn beer, which supplements people's diets. But the society as the the Spanish came to know them was also um, very proud of its military prowess. Mm -hmm. And so from about 1400 at least, we also see the Incas expanding through warfare, through forced conversion of people to allies. And sometime in the 15th century, um, the empire seems to uh, really move past this heartland in southern Peru and begin incorporating other kingdoms and societies on the what we know as today the Peruvian coast to the south near Lake Titicaca, eventually in the early 16th um, century, uh, reaching all the way up into Ecuador and Colombia. Um, okay. And this rapid explosion is often credited... Um, to uh, the Inca Emperor Pachacuti, which means the world turner or um, the world shaker, uh, who founded, at least his descendants claimed, that he founded a number of the features that became defining elements of the Inca Empire. As we know, it: the the, the veneration of the sun, the claim that the Incas are the descendants of the sun. Um, There's uh, some accounts that say that he came up with uh, the system of venerating uh, the imperial dead as embalmed bodies and still but still alive in the Inca's mind. Um, and we do certainly know that um, the site of Machu Picchu or um, some archaeologists say it actually should be called Huayna Picchu, was one of his royal estates. And he built a number of other uh, stunning uh, um, citadels outside of Cusco as well on the way to Machu Picchu.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, so I think, um, you know, originally, I think we were going to talk about your latest book first, but it might make more sense to talk a little bit about Machu Picchu in your first book and then work our way there. Does that work for you? That sounds Um, great. Okay, so Machu Picchu is obviously one of the iconic uh, sites on earth, and I'm sure most listeners will have an image of that in their head. Um, Can you talk a little bit about, you mentioned Hiram Bingham uh, a few minutes ago, and the later, I guess, discovery of Machu Picchu um, as a ruin. But can you talk a little bit about um, just the significance of Machu Picchu and uh, and kind of what it was like in ancient times, and sort of how this led to your the the book that you wrote about that?
1: Absolutely. Um, my first book was called Cradle of Gold: The Story of Hiram Bingham, a real life Indiana Jones, and the Search for Machu Picchu. And uh, Machu Picchu came to light in the world outside Peru in 1911 when Bingham came back from his first expedition um under the auspices of Yale mm-hmm. uh, and uh he was taken to um, this incredible site by people who lived in the area by a man who lived in the, the Urubamba River named Melchor Arteaga and he led Bingham on July 24th 1911 up to the Saddleback Ridge between two peaks, Machu Picchu and Huayna Picchu, um, where they met a number of families who were living there. The the Richarte family, the Alvarez family, and the Fuentes family. And one of the young members of the Richarte family, and some people say his name was Pablo or Pablito, led Hiram Bingham into the site itself. And so Machu Picchu wasn't abandoned. Uh, local peoples were living there and farming. They understood it as, um, part of their home, although, uh, they also respected the people who were interred there, who were buried there, and they saw them as possibly the original owners. Um, and Bingham came away from that experience, um, awestruck. Um, he later said that he didn't like the name Machu Picchu, which is, um, unfortunate, uh, unfortunate but um, he did want to learn more about it and he uh, came back in 1912 to excavate the site. And what Bingham was trying to um, prove in his mind was that uh, he had found the last city of the Incas as he described it. Um, and that last city we know historically as either Vipkos or Vilcabamba. There were two places where the uh, Inca royal family Um, specifically one of the last emperors, Manco Inca, that he fled to, to escape the Spanish in 1536, 1537, after rising up against the Spanish. And it was further on into the jungle. And the irony is that Bingham actually did get to those sites after visiting Machu Picchu in 1911. But they weren't classic imperial sites. They weren't of the type of architecture that he'd come to expect as um, truly... uh, impressive imperial architecture as at Cusco or Ollantaytambo which is a site between Cusco and Machu Picchu and then Machu Picchu itself itself so it was a little bit like he um began digging and, try- and tried to make uh all of his evidence fit the theory that Machu Picchu was the last city of the Incas. And Bingham even got to the point where he came to believe that it was the first city of the Incas, that its three-windowed temple represented the the three-windowed cave that the I.R. brothers came out of and founded the Inca empire. Um, What we know today is that Bingham was wrong. It wasn't either of those things. Um, And it was an estate of Pachacuti, um, who probably built it um, sometime in the early 15th century Um, bringing engineers from Cusco, but also um, from all over the empire, people who lived there and worked there. The community probably supported about 400, 600 people um, at its height. So it wasn't so much a large city um, as a royal settlement and a state. It was a temple complex, a place to uh, venerate uh, the sun, the sky, uh, the mountains that rose up on all sides, as well as the water below, which are the three of the main elements of Andean cosmology, um, sky, mountains, um, and water in the underground. And uh, Pachacuti might have even, um, probably was at times, interred there. One of the things that Bingham did get right was he identified uh, a cave underneath the Temple of the Sun that had a number of large niches in them, which would have been a place to put mummies when they were visiting. And so after Pachacuti died, um, he would have been uh, um, embalmed um, in in our language. Um, in the mid 16th century, Spaniards recorded uh, the story um, of, of how Inca emperors were embalmed and uh, some of their organs were removed and placed in a a, um, separate icon with the hearts of other Inca emperors. And they were otherwise um, dried in a seating position with um, uh, balsams and other natural substances uh, spread on their body. So over the course of a year, they would harden and become these stable beings that could be carried from place to place. And so Pachacuti, until he was Captured until his body was captured by the Spanish, uh, would have been carried from Cusco to Machu Picchu and back into his other sites. And so, through the mid 16th century, Machu Picchu probably continued to be an imperial Inca estate, um, and and one that uh, was maybe um, looted at times. Um, historians and archaeologists are, you know, have some debate about that, but was known to Inca people. And continued to be known up until the moment that uh, Bingham visited. That it would have been hard to miss a place that big and impressive
0: um, um, if people were still walking past it uh, every other every other day. Right, right. Was well, so I'm imagining. I mean, with Machu Picchu and talking about the Andes and this kind of thing, was the the Incan Empire one that? was very mountainous? I mean, did they have other settlements in the mountains or near the mountains? And how did, I guess, how did the mountain range play into their um, civilization?
1: That's a great question. It was um, pretty extremely formative for it. Um, It moved uh, through the highlands and initially confined itself um, to the highlands and the mountains. Uh, The Incas are famous for developing a road system um, and building on a prior road system of um, other, other societies like the Wadi um, people who had originally about 300, 400 years before the Incas had developed their own sort of larger state, which included roads. But the Incas really extended them, um, creating a uh, what is called the Capacñán or the Royal Road um, system that led from Cusco and branched out in every direction all the way up to Colombia in the north, and Chile and Argentina in the south. And uh, it stayed as much as it could um, in in highland regions. They built uh, swinging rope bridges between the massive canyons that are also uh, a big part of the Andes. And um, as it reached its sort of like imperial apex in like the fifteenth and early sixteenth century, by then it had also included lowlands, a little bit down towards the jungle, although they were held off by a number of um, of independent groups who lived there, as well as on the Peruvian coast, um, which was a, a major agricultural zone in Peru. It was a lot It's a lot of desert. Um, there's there's not much room to grow things. Um, in the Andes. And so what the Incas were doing by sort of linking all these zones was um, tapping into millennia of indigenous innovation in agricultural technologies, in um, platformed terracing, and the nice terraces to grow foods, but also to retain water for times of drought. Canals that um, moved water from highland peaks across long stretches um, supporting multiple communities um and and systems control for flooding because um, the andes because it's so subject to el nino every four or five years or so goes through a period of of uh major rains um which can sweep away um societies that aren't prepared and um there's you know, the incas get talked about um And have been debated, particularly in the 19th and 20th century, as you know. Just do they count as an early version of um, uh, socialism or communitarian um, ideologies, or even communism? Some people pick them up as early uh, model communists, Um, and you know that's kind of a dead end argument because when you start talking about that, you're really just arguing about the 19th and 20th century. But what Mm. they did do was by linking these many. insurance systems really, for food together, um, they could offer something to people, which is if you are experiencing um, uh, alimentary hardship, if you're having trouble feeding yourself um, over here in this zone, we have access this entire empire that has store rooms um, in which uh, we've been amassing potatoes and corn and other things that can be used to support you in your time of need. And for some people, that was a good trade, that loss of maybe larger independence outside of their valley, um, but um, access to things coming from far, far away, the coast, the jungle uh, that could have transformed
0: their lives. Wow. Um, Well, I know that um, there's been a lot of advances in some of the uh, ways that we've learned about what's some of the ruins and different things that are sort of hidden on the jungle floor, the rainforest floor. Is that something that's impacted our understanding of the Incas with the LIDAR detection and all that kind of thing? Or is that mostly other civilizations? It's a good
1: question. You know, I haven't... um... Heard as much about lidar for the Andes, and I, I wonder if that's because of um, the slopes and how steep it is. Yeah, places that we're talking about um, are on ridges already that sort of can be mistaken for physical spaces. I know the drones have been used to map things, mm. and that's useful. And um, satellite imagery has been used on. On the coast and areas that are a little bit flatter to identify um, from space um, structures that might have been missed or places that people are looting. Um, I think uh, what has been exciting to me for the Andes is just the work of um, ground truthing. Um, And part of that is going back to some of the places that were originally written off, like, for example, um, Vilcabamba, the, the actual last settlement of the Incas that Hiram Bingham was looking for, um, he dismissed uh, when he first visited it. But starting in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s and on, Peruvian and American um, scholars and archeologists have uh, gone back to it. And uh, have one identified that this was where um, the Inca empire uh, retreated to during the Spanish invasion. And that, you know, what Bingham thought made it less impressive, it didn't have this monumental architecture, actually shows really interesting adaptations. So Incas building with Spanish roofing tiles, for example, um, uh, show evidence that this these places were actually inhabited before the Incas. So the Incas were retreating to um, the outposts of other past societies to, to try and defend themselves. Um, there's the, the challenge, I think, that um, archaeologies and archaeology in the Andes sometimes faces is the sheer amount of material that's preserved, um, just how many sites still exist. Um, the Peruvian government has worked for years and years and years to be able to try and protect them, but it's um, a constant struggle, and yeah. looting remains a real problem there as in other places in the world. Um but uh, there's so much um, that uh, you know it's one of the places, and I write about this in, in my new book Empires of the Dead, there's a reason why the Andes is one of, for me, one of the the birthplaces of what we understand as archaeology. Um, it's a perfect combination of an environment that um, in its dryness naturally preserves a lot that then was used by indigenous people to, um, Uh, Create monuments and mortuary practices that really sort of relied on that ability to hold on to the dead, which then creates perfect conditions for the field of anthropology and archaeology to develop because there's just literally so much to know and discover about the Andean
0: past. Wow. Well, and maybe that's a good uh, segue to uh, your new book. Uh, which is Empires of the Dead, Inca Mummies, and the Peruvian Ancestors of American Anthropology. Um, So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what led you to take on this subject and why you think it's an important one? I
1: wanted to tell the story of grave robbing and grave opening in the Andes and how it coexisted with archeology span in the 19th and 20th century. And to some extent, um, still exists today. Um, I thought that that was going to be a much shorter book, just focusing on that time period and the rise of, um, uh, more exact archeological methods. But I found a couple things. One is that I could never figure out where it was supposed to begin. I kept on looking for the place like, okay, now is when, um, Uh, people, outsiders, start um, investigating the past in the Andes. And it took me all the way back to the 16th century. Um, I also realized that uh, there was never a moment that what we think of as archaeology wasn't competing with local understandings of what ancestors and ruins were, that that was baked into the story from the very beginning, that um, the 16th century Spaniards, when they invaded Peru and Tawantansuyu from very early on, they start observing how, uh, the Incas and other native Andean people organize their societies in relationship to ancestors and to non-breathing beings that the Spanish called, um, idols, um, and saw them as diabolic influences. But for local peoples were, you know, it's, this is our ancestor. This is, um, the stone that we know is alive and that, um, Uh, and whose like waters that come from around it, the mountain whose waters that come from around it, we rely on. And so um, it became a much bigger book. It became a story of how Inca and Andean ancestors became mummies and specimens um, in museums around the world. And when I say like an ancestor becoming a mummy, what I I mean by that is um, I think by, you know, the criteria of archeology, span the Incas and Andean peoples before the Spanish arrived were mummifying their dead. They were intentionally Mm. preserving them to have longer relationships to them. But a mummy is a very specific term that comes from the old world um, and was originally associated just with ancient Egyptians and people from the near East. And the story of how that word gets applied to uh, ancestral beings that The Incas knew as iapas or sort of lightning beings, and that their subjects sometimes called malkis, or plants, like plants ready to regrow the community, ancestors as the root of the community. How those beings became mummies is the story of colonialism itself. Um, The Spanish began not just trying to confiscate the Andean dead, but investigate them. How exactly were they made? Like, Mm. why were they so well-preserved? Their great fear was that, oh, maybe they're preserved um, for uh, through essentially supernatural reasons. Um, because the Spanish and Christians had their own mummies. They were just called saints. Mm. Uh, they were, in their understanding of like a preserved dead was one whom God had, had um, uh, preserved. They also embalmed their dead, but they saw that as... A extremely complicated um, uh, maneuver that required obscure materia medica and elements from the Near East. And so when they encounter the Incas, um, they want to disprove that it's anything supernatural that is um, making them so hard and stable. But they also have an eye on the finances of it, because if they can identify what preserved um, the Inca dead, they have something that they can sell back in Europe from... Five, six years into the conquest, um, the Spanish king is writing to the conquistadors in Peru saying, send me balsam of Peru. Um, There are accounts of uh, the Spanish sort of describing the Inca mummies as embalsamados or embalmed ones. And this news gets translated in in Iberia and then the Mediterranean and the larger Atlantic world. And other people in other countries start writing about, hey, there's this place called Peru where they have people who are so well embalmed, it looks like they died yesterday, or they're just waking, they're waiting to wake up. And in the 17th century, um, some scholars make the connection. They said, hey, maybe these Inca, um, these embalmed Incas were even better preserved than the mummies. And in the 18th century, you see for the first time people saying, wait, mummies is a larger category. It's not just people from Egypt. It's any body of some antiquity who's preserved, which includes the Inca and Andean dead. And the rest of the book, and that's sort of the first third of the book, the rest of the book is the story of like what it means that there is a place in the Americas that going into the 18th century, that has this association with antiquity. Um, why does one place Peru draw so many outsiders to it to investigate uh, the dead and their death ways. And how do mummies, Inca mummies, Andean mummies, then travel from Peru and end up in museums around the world?
0: Wow. So okay, so that's really my next question. Is so when the European um uh explorers, colonists, etc. came, did they just start taking these mummies and shipping them somewhere else or, you know, what was there? What, what happened?
1: (laughs) That's That's a terrific question. And, um, it's one that it took me a while to sort of figure out. Um, we know, we knew some of the details of it for a while, but the why is it's been one of the mysteries for me. We know that they didn't really travel overseas, not until the 19th century. Um, and the why for that is because, um, European and Old World sailors in the 16th through really the mid-19th century really didn't want to have dead bodies on board their ships. They were Jonas in sort of like the, 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 the terms of mariners, that as sort of an unlucky thing that could bring calamity on everybody else. Mm. And so people weren't really looking to, to move the mummies or the Inca or Andean dead abroad. But the Spanish did start collecting them. Um, at first, uh, they were really just interested, the conquistadors were just interested in the gold and silver that were um, draped across some of the Inca mummies, or the, the, the wealth that was interred with the many other societies that existed in the Andes before the Incas, because um, uh, human habitation in the Americas is at least... Fourteen to sixteen thousand years old, and in the Andes, there are millennia of people beforehand who were also interring their dead. And after about zero AD or CE, with more and more wealth, so the Spanish are at first focusing on looting. Uh, but when they realize that the Incas understand their emperors as still alive, uh, they realize that they uh, have a problem. Um, how do you assert dominance? of a society in which um, the old emperors still have power, who are still moving around. And so in 1559, a Spanish administrator named Polo de Ondegardo um, hunts down the surviving uh, Iyapa or uh, preserved Inca mummies, and he confiscates them and he brings them to his home and parades them through the streets of Cusco in sort of a display of dominance. And then he sends them to Lima, which was the Spanish viceregal capital, and once there, they end up in one of the first hospitals in Peru, run by the Spaniards, the Hospital of San Andres. And the Spaniards actually go and start to visit them and look at them. They're on display. And they um, Jesuit uh, scholars start investigating them, trying to figure out how were they made. And um, I found evidence that suggests that they, they dissected some of them to figure mm-hmm. out what exactly was on the inside that was sort of preserving the form of the Inca dead. And so from very early on, they're in, um, the outsiders are engaging in science towards the Andean dead, um, not sending them abroad, but periodically digging up tombs sometimes to loot them, but also to know them and to sort of develop theories about who they were and also to to assert, you know these aren't sacred things to you anymore. it's right. this is where we have to think about how archaeology, and the roots of archaeology do have something that is really violent and aggressive towards yeah. its peoples. If you still believe that this person is alive, but the Spaniard takes them and you know, undoes them, essentially, that's violence. Yeah. Um, and it, it sort of it it affects how we think of you know museums in the nineteenth and twentieth century too.
0: And so they were really trying to reverse engineer what was happening here. Um, was there any to your, in, in your research on this, was there any voices on the side of the Spanish or the Europeans that were saying, mm, let's not, let's not dig up and start destroying the, you know, the these things and and kind of uh, turning it into a, a, you know, a scientific thing, like maybe these are sacred. Was there any, Is that a modern movement or, I mean, how do you uh, look at that?
1: (laughs) That is such a good question. Um, Very early on, there was. There were Spanish priests who in the first 40 or so years of of colonization in Peru uh, really wanted to leave the Andean ancestors in the hands of their descendants because they were trying to get people to convert in a way that was not aggressive, <laughs> that sort of didn't have them feel like, you know, it's conversion at the the tip of a, of a sword. Mm. So they tried to get Andean people to understand um, their ancestors as retiring, essentially, that burying them in a church might be the same thing or the next thing that they do um, to become Christian. And so there was a focus early on of trying not to um, make things worse by being so aggressive. And there's, um, a famous, uh, Dominican friar named Bartolomé de las Casas. Um, and he wrote, um, a number of works criticizing the Spanish for how they behaved in the Americas. And one of his last ones, uh, was a massive work saying that, uh, anyone who had looted the dead in the Americas was, um, uh, spiritually responsible to god for having um assaulted another people's ancestors for theft Mm. Um, and so early on there were people sort of saying you know this might not be right this this isn't if if european expansion in the 16th century is justifying itself as a christian endeavor and as one that is has justice as its main concern then the looting of the incas and of their subjects and of their ancestors um, disqualifies it from mm. from that criteria. Um, however, come the nineteenth century, that sort of concern isn't so much there anymore. There's there's um, there's such a triumphant narrative around archaeology and Christianity, um, mm. and so much time has passed that a lot of um, collectors. And archaeologists in this moment in the 19th and 20th century say, basically, this is these are this is the remains of non-Christian peoples. So it's fair game; we can we can dig them up. Um, you do, however, get Andean uh, peoples and and some Peruvians who uh, are knowing the dead in their own way, or maybe um, in the 19th century they begin carrying the dead again, like they did in the 16th century. Uh, and these communities in, in the highlands um, are trying to reestablish relationships. And sometimes, you know, they are telling outsiders in the 19th and 20th century who come to their lands that you can't remove these mummies. If you do, um, it could bring environmental calamity down upon us. Um, they could make you sick. They could make us sick. Uh, and one of the really shocking and intense things to read about is, you know, these 19th and 20th century Outsiders, collectors hearing this and just doing it anyway, sneaking out with mummies under cover of night, um, forcing local peoples to dig up the dead um, uh, for them. Relying on the Peruvian government to make local peoples, dig up people that, you know, they might not call them ancestors anymore, but they say these are our Inca brothers. Um, And so my book ends up being um, a real attempt to sort of come to terms with what that means for the museums that contain these mummies. Um, there's one way to think of them as um, time travelers that helps us reach back in time and understand humanity in an earlier era. Um, but if we also understand them as still maybe alive on some level, and I know that might be a kind of stretch for some of your listeners. Um, it also makes this a little bit of a horror story too. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a reason why um, some Andean peoples are trying to get mummies back from museums. Sometimes it's to put them in their own museums and have sort of like access to this fount of culture, but also sometimes tourism. Um, but it's also in recognition that there's been a loss um, in removing so many ancestors from from the countryside. Um, but... You know, it's I grew up as perhaps you did, going to these museums, um, and and having these encounters with other peoples, and um, being opened up to the past because of it. And I, I don't think anyone in in Peru would say that um, that Peru's presence in museums abroad should vanish. Uh, the Peruvian government has worked really hard to have its culture and history recognized as as being as, a, as important as the Romans, the Greeks, any other society in the world. Um, mm. But there's a, there should be a way to do it that sort of
0: recognizes that it's come at a cost. Okay. I'm reminded of, um, I was getting, I haven't watched it yet, the new Indiana Jones movie, <laughs> but the famous quote, this belongs in a museum or, or whatever. And yeah. um You know, it's a I I have been looking into this lately and I was going to do a separate episode um, just based on some of the controversies around the museums and the British Museum and the Parthenon marbles, et cetera. Um, And it's just had me thinking I've been listening to kind of both sides, so to speak, and hearing all the arguments and things. Um, What is the current uh, um, sort of situation as far as Incan uh, relics and artifacts and etc. around the world. I mean, is um, are 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 a lot of is, is a lot of the material culture of the Incas in that region, or has it been taken away? And is there a lot of controversy ar- around this? Are people asking for this stuff back from prominent museums? Um, That's
1: a great question.
0: Um, uh, Peru has had a national museum.
1: Um, open to the public uh, since 1826. One was founded in 1822, um, uh, opened in 1826, which is you know, 20 years before the Smithsonian opened in the United States. And um, for nearly two centuries now, Uh, the nation has taken an interest in what it originally called antiquities, but now we would call today archaeological remains and human remains. Since 1929, the Peruvian government has claimed ownership of anything that is found um, in a monument, um, which includes the dead, which, you know, some people find a little bit complicated, a little bit fraught for a government to be cleaning the remains of the dead. But it has used that past to represent the the nation abroad as well. My book shows that in the 19th century, um, the Peruvian government traded away mummies to um, get other museums interested in the Peruvian past. Mm. Peruvian collectors sold their collections abroad, sometimes to make money, but also because they wanted to see Peruvian history reflected in the great ethnological museums of Berlin, Vienna, Chicago, New York, Washington, DC. from the perspective of the 20th century, century, that became a loss. Um, uh, Peruvians start to wonder, you know, these great collections that we used to have in our country, they're not here anymore. We need to conserve them. The story of Machu Picchu ends this way, actually. Um, Bingham gets permission from the Peruvian government in 1912 to excavate, uh, but the government says that you can bring these materials to the United States, but you have to send it back when we ask for it. And my first book showed the long history of Peru asking for Yale University to send that stuff back and Yale dodging the question. Um, and it was pretty exciting to see that, you know, after my book came out, it was um, used by the Peruvian government and uh, the U.S. Embassy and also National Geographic that had a stake in the story, too, and as well as Yale alumni to try and get the university to do the right thing. And after 2010, um, Yale and Peru came to an agreement to return the remains of Machu Picchu to Cusco. Peru hasn't gone around, though, asking for everything back. Um, It does seek remains that are looted, um, Mm. but there's just so much out there and so much stuff already in Peru that it's been a little bit less of a priority. So what we might be seeing as a way through the situation is one in which it's less confrontational um, there are ways to repatriate or recognize the originating country that doesn't involve things getting sent back. I believe I just saw um a an article about how the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City um, is recognized the ownership of, I believe, Yemen over some of its artifacts. Mm. But Because um, the country is a little bit concerned about conservation issues back at home, they will continue to be on this display um, in New York, fulfilling one of the goals of museums like this, which is to get people interested um, in in other cultures and history. Now, I think personally, it becomes problematic when a museum like, say, the British Museum starts saying things like... um, we're doing this because it is inherently safer here than anywhere else. Um, We are a safer place. And then their curator gets discovered selling ancient jewelry on eBay or wherever. Um, It's not a good look. (laughs) And it uh, really helps the argument that, um, you know, that's it's this sort of claim that the West is the best place to um, care for these things it really sort of points it up as as having a, a tone of superiority to it if not sometimes racism about other yeah. people and
0: places i was sort of new to the debate and i was surprised by how uncompelling in my view the arguments were to keep some of the parthenon marbles for example in england i mean it just uh I felt like it just wasn't very persuasive to me, especially when you consider that, you know, the British museum in, in England, it's a wealthy country. They could do such a great, you know, it's, it's so much more meaningful for the Greeks to have some of these things back and in a similar, in a nearby area to where they originally used. And um, it's a, you know, I, I really came away from listening to a lot of the arguments feeling like, wow, you know, especially in this case, I don't know about every case. And I don't, I know there's different political situations and different governments and things involved, but this, this stuff probably needs to uh, go back on some, on some level. Um, But I mean, so when you are experiencing museums and going through, I mean, is that something where, um, what's your relationship to museums? And do you feel like a large percentage of things in a lot of history museums are, um, you know, uh, probably shouldn't be there, or um, I mean, or everything is kind of, uh, yeah, I, I guess that's kind of a complicated question. But uh, what is your experience in, in some of these places like the British Museum? Is, is it, what's your perspective on that?
1: I think when they don't talk about how things got there, it definitely becomes essentially loot like stuff that like loses the chain of ownership or loses the historical context, which is important for a museum to, to make obvious. Um, That being said, I think each of like the poles, the side that everything should stay and the side that everything should go. I think life and history and and reality is just so much more complicated we can't have sort of like a one size fits all solution whether it's museums retain everything or everything has to flow back Mm outwards i think there are really creative ways to make trades um, entangle museums together get um, recognized that you know um, that the British Museum has held on to objects from this community for so long. Well, why don't they loan some of their objects from British history to this other other society? Um, I think it's the choice. It should be, we should put more emphasis on you know, what an originating community wants. Um, but I, I think it's not something that has to be confrontational, like it's it's been portrayed. And I think museums still perform a tremendously important function. In society and getting mm. expanding people beyond themselves, um, uh, thinking of people um, who they might not originally think of as being so similar to themselves, as uh, making them understandable as um, as as more sympathetic or sometimes different in ways that are surprising. Museums, I think, are can be important places to protect difference and explain why we're not all the same. Um, yeah, and not everyone wants to be the same. Um, and, uh, and one way to do that is by listening to sort of original communities like, um, uh, you know, the, the groups that have been calling for the return of the, the Benin, um, bronzes or, or the brass works, um, uh, to understand like why it matters for them to have those materials back closer to home, whether in the the possession of, of, um, Uh, the Oba of Benin, the the descendant of the ruler, or within the country itself. Um, But again, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. And there are some communities, and particularly in terms of human remains, some communities want and need the human remains back in order to close that breach, that loss. Others, these are very dangerous beings, and museums might be in a you-broke-it-you-bought-it situation that Mm -hmm. museums... um, uh, might find themselves having to be stewards in, in ways that they might not feel as comfortable with anymore. But I think are important to like, recognize that um, it opens up museums to to listening to the, the descendants of the people whose things that they've, they've collected and displayed. And that I think is, you know, that for me is the way forward, it's going to continue to get more tangled um, uh, before it gets more clear. And some some situations we might see returns, but in others, I I think we need to get creative and recognize how a museum in Peru and a museum in the United States are related to each other. And, um, that the museum in the United States might have a responsibility to
0: reach out and say, Hey, what do you think we should do? Yeah. Do you, um, are you able to spend much time in Peru and the Andes and go and visit and stuff like that?
1: I am. I do as as much time as I can. Um, I've been there twice this year. I'm hoping to get back in December. Um, Next year, I'll be spending at least a month in May. Um, I love it there. Um, I lived there between 2005 and 2006 and 2012 and 2013. I just brought my um, eldest child there in uh, June for his first visit. And we had an amazing time at Machu Picchu and surfing on the coast, which is not something I'd ever done before. I hadn't visited with kids before, um, but it's a tremendous place, and uh, you can spend your entire life traveling in Peru and find something new. Um, it's not just Machu Picchu. Um, the next time you have me on, fingers crossed, um, I'll talk about Chavin de Wantar, uh, which is an incredible site uh, in the central Andes that has an underground temple in which shamans entered, um, taking, uh, the psychedelic San Pedro cactus and having intense visions of serpent, lizard, jaguar, stone beings coming out of the ground. And, um, you know, I love that history. I love, and I love the people in Peru who, um, have cared for it and cared for it
0: and have made it part of society today. Wow. Well, I haven't been lucky enough to go to South America yet, but um, this is uh, definitely piquing my interest. I would love to go. Um, So I'll remind listeners that we've been talking to Christopher Heaney, who is the author of Empires of the Dead Inca Mummies and the Peruvian Ancestors of American Anthropology, um, which just came out recently this summer. Um, Professor, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Um, about your research or where people can find you or anything we haven't covered that you wanted to mention before we wrap up? I've had a great time, Patrick. Thank you so much. Um, your
1: listeners can find me on uh, social media at, at CHR on Twitter, as well as on um, other sites as well. I use the same one across it. And I will be um, traveling and doing some talks over the next year or so. So you can check out my website, christopherhaney.net to find out about some of those ones that are going to be happening and happening in uh, more public areas but i would love to meet some of your listeners and i hope people get excited about
0: Andy and history too awesome awesome well thanks a lot for coming on and hopefully we'll be able to talk again someday i hope so too thanks patrick bye bye Thank you to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Thanks for listening.